This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We recently received some good news about COVID booster shots. If you're 70 plus or if you had two shots of AstraZeneca, you now qualify for a third COVID vaccine, as long as it's been 168 days after your second shot. There's also a lot of negative reaction to the governing Ford PC's decision not to require mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. On Monday, our Zoomer squad weighed in on this development. Libby was joined by Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. It's totally uh, hard to understand uh, why healthcare workers aren't being mandated to uh, get, the, get the COVID vaccines, both their, both their shots, uh, when all the, the uh, medicine, all the research is saying they should be, and most of them, most of them have it. It's the, the last few that could could ruin it for everybody else. David, it's kind of a, a, a head scratcher, I have to say. I mean, at the beginning, Doug Ford was saying, "Oh, uh, thousands of workers would be gone, healthcare workers." That's not the case. I, I guess he was looking at Quebec, among other things. I mean, I found it very surprising that Quebec was the first to announce a mandate and then backed off of it. So maybe that spooked him. But uh, really, you know, we heard last week from hospital presidents who said. Uh, first of all, they said that the people they have already suspended or terminated, that that it hasn't affected the operations, really. And there's a concern that they'll just go to home care or some other place. Well, I think that's right. And I think that, that um, the government did not flesh out the first part of their argument, which is we, we have no choice here because we're going to be uh, hit with a wave of suspensions or resignations or firings, and we will not have enough staff. And it's better to test them, which I think they still are required to be tested regularly. It's better to test them so that we keep our manpower up to snuff than watch them all leave. But they never, you know, supplied the finishing touch to that argument, which is to quantify if 85% have already been double vaccinated, so I'm only talking about 15% that have not. What percentage of those 15% would you be saying goodbye to? Is it all of them? Is it some of them? And then what percentage are being tested and the argument's moot anyway? So there's just too many unknowns here to really uh, understand what's going on. David, I've got to interrupt you. It's 85% in the general population, but in hospitals, it's it's like 98. Uh, you know, there's... Oh, yeah, uh, you're right. Okay, I'm sorry. So even like, worse, even, I mean, even, yeah. even more so. I mean, how many people are we talking about? And they should have come out and said, we have 6,000 people, 1,200, pick a number, who uh, could disappear 
from the workforce, and we can't have that, and therefore we're doing this. Uh, and also, they didn't supply part two, testing. How many are being tested? How many of them are happy to be tested without getting the vaccine? Uh, we just don't know. So it's a, he's, he's laying out general principles, which could be valid if we had the supporting numbers, but we don't. Peter, one of the things, you know, when I was talking to Dr. Peter Uni from the Science Advisory Table, he's sort of saying, oh, you know, they'll do what they always do, which is they'll say this now, and then after there's a hue and cry, they'll change their minds, they'll bring it in. Uh, is that what you think will, will be going on? Well, I, I would have thought that, um, and, and, you know, I, I read the... Um the CMAs uh, and, and the Canadian Nurse Association joint statement calling on their uh, on the nurses to get the shots, but um, the ONA, the Ontario Nurses Association, is against it. And um, I, I parsed through the statement, and I, I just couldn't I couldn't see other than you know um, other than leaving it up to the individual and, and uh, you know let, letting the individual nurses make the decision. I couldn't see what their argument was other than we're going to lose nurses. And if this has been proven wrong, then um, I, I don't know why the Ontario Nurses Association is still against the, the mandate. It, it, it's slightly confusing to me, but they, you know, and, and I, I just can't see their reasoning in, in, their, uh, in their press release. It seems to me a little bit of a, uh, a, a confused statement. And uh, I, I, you know, all I can figure is that they're worried about losing losing uh, members at a time when they can't afford it. And uh, but um, you know they they may change. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating officer and chief policy officer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, the land borders to the United States reopened for non-essential travelers who've been double vaccinated against COVID-19. But several border town mayors want the Ottawa Liberals to drop their requirement that anyone entering or returning to Canada must present an expensive negative PCR test. Wendy Paradis is president of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies. Wayne Redekop is mayor of Fort Erie. And Jim Diodati is Niagara Falls mayor. They joined Libby with their perspectives on Monday. I've got tempered enthusiasm. I'm I'm happy. I'm grateful that the border is opening up. Uh, obviously, I'm still frustrated. There's some wrinkles that need to be ironed out. The idea of having to do a PCR test to get into the country is counterintuitive. It doesn't serve any purpose. And the, the minute they remove that, that's when the border will actually be opened and celebrated. That's when people start to travel once again. Until that happens, people are unfortunately bypassing Canada. They're going to Europe where there's no PCR requirement and it's not been it's not been good for tourism. I can tell you this summer when we opened up the border, the Americans did not return because of that requirement. And now that the American border is opened up to Canadians, we will have to have a test on upon return and it's not gonna I'll tell you right now, there's no wait times at any of the borders. We've got four of them in Niagara and they're not busy. There's no lineups. Mayor Redekop, uh, I gather that you are a little more uh, cautious about the whole thing. I certainly agree that the, uh, the, the test, the, the notion that you can be tested here, go across the border into the States, 
spend a few days and then come back and, and, and use that test if it's within 72 hours doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, there's a lot of things that have happened over the past 20 months that don't make a lot of sense. There's been a lot of contradictory messaging from public health authorities, from, from governments, despite the fact that I think both the federal government and the Ontario government have, by and large, done an excellent job trying to manage um, a pandemic that has proven to be deathly in, in many respects. I don't know what the answer is. I know that up until this point, we have tried to follow the guidance from public health authorities, um, but I do agree that um, there needs to be a refinement of these processes. And, and as, as Mayor um, Jim Diodati has mentioned, we're not seeing uh, a flood of Americans coming into Canada, and that undoubtedly is because of the, the testing protocol. Wendy, what's your view on how this will impact uh, the recovery of your sector? So as far as the travel and tourism industry in Canada, at this point in time, probably the number one barrier uh, to recovery and for travelers to actually come and go in and out of Canada is the PCR test. So part of that is the cost of it. It could cost up to $200 per person. So whether you're a senior or a family traveling, it's uh, very prohibitive. Uh, the other issue is that, um, again, we all want health, health and safety when it comes to travel and moving around within our communities. And um, we are sending um, the government back to their own expert panel. So they had an expert panel of uh, medical professionals and scientists that actually spent months analyzing all of the data around vaccinations and COVID spread, etc. And um, the federal government's own expert panel um, came out and said, a PCR test, that very high standard, gold standard test, is not required. It is excessive. And so certainly for our industry, for us to survive and for uh, Canadians and Americans to be able to uh, travel back and forth, that um, we are asking the federal government to take a look at what their own experts panel said and then to follow those uh, processes. So definitely the PCR test um, is um, probably the most significant barrier right now when it comes to traveling between Canada and the United States. And the lack of alignment and consistency between the U.S. and the Canadian government. It is confusing. Wendy Paradis, president at the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies, along with Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati and Wayne Redekop, mayor of Fort Erie. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the push for new Ontario highways leaves critics fuming. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
With MPs beginning a new parliamentary session later this month, there's a lot of focus on federal politics, especially with the conservatives still seemingly mired in the vaccine controversy, which many insiders believe cost them the September election. Former leadership hopeful Marilyn Gladue recently formed her own mini-caucus to discuss vaccines and vaccine mandates. There's talk of a formal liberal NDP agreement to prop up the minority Trudeau government. Those involved say it's not happening, but is it? And Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland has waded into Quebec language politics. Plenty for Libby to get into with Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Charles Souza, former Ontario Finance Minister. And Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. They're acting like a bunch of little kids, to be honest. And uh, they don't realize that there's quite a lot at stake here. And there's no winning the anti-vax argument. There is just, there is no winning it. And at some point, I think Aaron O'Toole is just going to have to say, listen, guys, if that's, if you feel so strongly, if that's the hill that you choose to die on, then you need to go over there and do that. But you, you can't be part of a uh, important opposition holding the government to task at a critical time in our recovery and hold us back. They're basically holding back the conservatives from being able to do the job that they've been elected to do as a party. And something's got to give. And I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for Aaron O'Toole as he's trying to navigate through this because the last thing he wants is the Conservative Party blowing up. But the reality is if he doesn't get a hold of this issue and tackle it to the ground soon, it is going to prevent him from doing the job that he has to do. But Yeah, but how could he afford to get rid of them? There's a lot of them. There is a lot of them. And it's really, a, 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 to be honest with you, it's a bit of a come to Jesus moment. Like, guys, do you want to sit here and squabble like a bunch of kids? Or do you want to come and try to lead, lead me in this part, the development of this party? Because they are quickly becoming irrelevant. And they may matter to their constituents. And, you know, good, good for them. They need to do that. But for the rest of the country, they are becoming a sideshow. John, um, Aaron O'Toole did just uh, minutes ago unveil his shadow cabinet. So uh, he is leaving out those people. Leslin Lewis is one of them. I mean, she seemed to be so promising, but she's into this. Marilyn, glad you out of the shadow cabinet. And he is re- restoring his former rival, uh, who I think is an actual rival, Pierre Polyevre, as the party's finance critic. Well, you know, the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, uh, certainly plays, uh, plays into the role here. But no, I, listen, Pierre Polybeth has always been a huge fighter, uh, for the conservative cause, especially in finance. I was quite frankly displeased when he had, when he had moved them out of finance prior to the election. I thought Pierre was one of the, one of the most, uh, you know, active, uh, and engaged, uh, opposition members and quite frankly effective. And, and there's, it's no joke that when he got up to speak or ask a question or, or, you know, in a committee, I think the liberals really were shaking in their boots because they don't, you don't know what they were coming from. And some of the, some of the stuff that he did actually garnered a lot of very positive press in some way. So I'm glad. And a frequent contributor on this show, I might add. Well, <laughs> even better. But no, um, I would, I would say that I'm glad to have him back. But with respect to Leslie Lewis and, and Marilyn Glado, quite frankly, I don't think they, they should be in the shadow cabinet. So I, I'm quite supportive of move on, on that. I think for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, if they're fundamentally going to disagree with the leader, 
with respect to uh, to vaccines, then, then then they shouldn't be in a shadow cabinet because that's going to that's that's part of the of the the, the brain trust of, of the of the government or of the opposition. So, and the other thing too, quite frankly, Libby, is this: if they're not prepared to answer the question whether or not they're vaccinated or not, and there's some in the caucuses we know uh, are either not saying that they're vaccinated or aren't vaccinated, then they shouldn't be shadow cabinet ministers because you need those shadow cabinet ministers to be in the legislature in the House of Commons asking questions of the opposition. So, you know, if they're not prepared to, that's yet another ramification for those who decide not to be not to be vaccinated. That is not to go into the House of Commons and you can't be on the shadow cabinet list. So I would imagine that factored into his decision quite uh, prominently as well. Charles, uh, does uh, the way this adds up uh, mean that they are going to be effective or not effective? Well, they're not being effective at this moment. Um, certainly, Pierre and Michelle are are very outspoken. They also have a lot of misinformation. And there's a lot of misinformation around this issue with regards to the efficacy of this vaccine and why politicians are engaging in that discussion is mind-blowing. And uh, if they take lessons from Ford, take one lesson, and that is come to your senses, as he has done here in Ontario, and ensure people are vaccinated. Now, I am concerned about one thing, one thing that they did say that I'm actually in agreement with, and that's the legitimacy of some exceptions. And if the vaccine passport could at least entitle those with special exceptions not to have footnotes in their vaccine passport, that would be appropriate. That way it doesn't impede upon their privacy issues. But otherwise, herd immunity is not going to happen until we all take steps. And uh, your hospitals are still being inundated and, and politicians have to lead by example. And I think, Aaron, I feel for Aaron O'Toole. He wants to. He really does, I believe, want to do this. He just has a huge group that he has to rely on, and it's going to be tough. And I'm disappointed by by their actions. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. New highways have become a big priority for Doug Ford's PCs at Queen's Park. That was very clear in this month's mini-budget. In addition to the controversial Highway 413, there are plans to develop the Bradford Bypass that would connect the 400 and the 404. The cost will be entirely covered by Ontario taxpayers, a plan which has angered environmentalists as well as others who say these projects won't do much to relieve congestion. Libby spoke on the topic with Green Party leader Mike Schreiner and Frank Clayton with the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University. Well, first of all, let's remember that the Ford government is spending billions of dollars on transit as well as roads. They're doing both. So it's not just one or the other. Uh, the growth of the greater Golden Horseshoe, the greater Toronto area, is phenomenal. It's expected over the next 40 years. Transit can't handle all the growth. But it, can't, it can only handle about one quarter of the trips, according to uh, Metro Lakes. Three quarters of the rush hour trips in 2041 will still be by cars, despite all the transit investment going on. If we don't expand the road with the, to accommodate the growth, like 100,000 people a year, a town, a city the size of Kingston added to the greater Toronto area every year, you've got to have some, you've got to have some road capacity. There's cars, and you also have to have transit. You need both. It's not one or the other. But uh, 
what's going on right now is under with all the transit investment being made, and even if you put this money on the billions of roads in the transit, all you would do is maintain the the existing modal split, as we call it, between transit and and roads uh, by the year 2041. In other words, you're not switching anybody from one road to the other. Uh, Mike Schreiner, what do you say to that? I mean, you said people being forced to uh, to drive, but people are moving. I mean, the housing costs in Toronto are are just out of sight, and people are moving further and further away. Well, Libby, I would say let's build livable, affordable, connected communities where people don't have to drive an hour just to be able to find an affordable place to, to live. And we have lots of opportunities for gentle density, triplexes, quadplexes, duplexes, uh, laneway housing, tiny homes, secondary suites, uh, mid-rise uh, multi-unit developments. There's a whole host of affordable alternatives. The bottom line is, is we're losing 175 acres of farmland every day in Ontario. That's the equivalent of five-family farms every week. We simply can't afford to continue to lose that much farmland and be able to be food secure, feed ourselves, not to mention 870,000 people who work in the food and farming sector, the $50 billion it creates for the province's GDP. It's simply not sustainable to continue to have sprawl development in the highways that facilitate it. Frank Clayton, uh, according to Mike Schreiner, uh, the bypass, for instance, would pump almost 87 million kilos of greenhouse gases into the air each year. I- is it worth it? Uh, you got to look at all the objectives. One of the objectives is affordable housing. Another objective is accommodate growth and ha- have commutes as, as, as short as possible. Uh, we need forty to 45,000 housing units a year in the greater Toronto area just to accommodate growth. 45,000. You can't do it through the ways he's talking about. You need some new housing. And the growth plan is a very balanced document. 50% of all new housing has to be built up in the built up urban areas, and the other 50% has to meet certain density requirements. So the growth plan is, is trying to have a balance between housing affordability, what people really want, and what the environmentalists want, which is not often what the people really want. Right. But my question was, is it worth the pollution and the destruction of farmland, in your opinion? Well, we don't know. Okay, first of all, yes, you're going to have to destruct to use up some farmland. But secondly, as far as emissions are concerned, we have no idea what things are going to look like 30, 40 years from now. We've got goals for electric cars. We might have hydrogen cars. We might have autonomous vehicles. We just don't know what they're going to be, but we know there's going to be cars and you need roads. So the, the emissions can be reduced through other means, but not through not having roads. You need roads as as well as you need transit. You need both. Frank Clayton with the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University and Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. 
And we also rely on you for your valued opinions, like Murray in Malton, who had these thoughts about the Bradford Bypass. Great. Uh, I don't see the, the big problem with the Bradford Bypass. Uh, I've checked the map, and I grew up up there. Right? So uh, most a good half of that proposed land will be residential in the next 10 to 20 years anyway especially through Queensville. They're already building out towards where that highway is going to go to. Pat called from Toronto to talk about mandatory COVID vaccines for healthcare workers. This is issue on the vaccination. And I'm afraid our uh, premier is costing us all money. I would hate to think what the average cost of looking after a person with COVID in the hospital is. And thus, by not requiring basically everybody to be vaccinated. Uh, you know, Doug Ford is costing us all money. Uh, you know, I would love to find out what that number is. Uh, and I know what's going to happen. We're probably going to see taxes being raised, et cetera, or other projects not happening. And this is an easy one to save money on. Just make sure and require whatever method you use that everybody get vaccinated. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Cheryl in Kingston, who also wants healthcare workers to be fully vaccinated. I want to say that I am a recent cancer survivor, so I spent 2020 fighting the big C. Uh-huh. I still have to attend the hospital to serious specialist. I am fully vaccinated and I think it's criminal that any healthcare worker should should be able to keep their job and be unvaccinated so they can impact my health when I've been so careful and other people are like me. I'm sorry, no. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.